Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews or conversations with spiritually awakening people, or in some cases, scientists who in generally are also spiritually awakening. But we talk about various topics related to spirituality in the light of science. I've done 530 of these so far, roughly, and this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and would like to support it, there is a PayPal button on every page of the site. My guest today is a very interesting person, Diane Hennessy Powell, M.D., Diane is a Johns Hopkins-trained psychiatrist, therapist, neuroscientist, and public speaker. She develops multidisciplinary theories towards understanding psychological anomalies, such as savant skills, and verified accounts of space-time navigation. Her current research focuses on controlled testing of autistic savants and children reported to be telepathic and or precognitive by their caregivers. Dr. Powell has been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, a member of a think tank on human consciousness at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, La Jolla, and director of research for the John E. Mack Institute. John Mack, he was the UFO guy, wasn't he? Alien abductions? Yes. Okay, good. Her investigation into the neurocorrelates of ESP is discussed in her 2008 book, The ESP Enigma, which I'll hold up here. The Scientific Case for Psychic Phenomenon. Um, I've read the whole book cover to cover, which I don't always get to do for interviews, but this one really drew me in. Um, And also she contributed to something called, a book called Seriously Strange, Thinking Anew About Psychical Experiences. Dr. Paul is also an expert on PTSD and created the Psychiatry Program for Survivors of Torture, International Survivors of Torture International in San Diego, California. She was the principal author of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, the 2007 Shift Report, Evidence of a World Transforming, and a contributing author to Beyond Forgiveness, Reflections on Atonement, the 2014 Campus Book of the Year at Indiana University. She's also a participant in the Never Alone Movement for Suicide Prevention, which I believe was started by Deepak Chopra, I think, wasn't it? Um, Deepak Chopra and Michelle Pascal. Okay, good. So, welcome, Diane. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, I think what we're going to do today is, first of all, talk a little bit about autistic savants and also people with psychic abilities, which might be, you know, children especially. Um, And probably everyone has seen the story, the the movie Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman and what's his name? That Scientology guy. (laughs) I can't remember his name. Tom Cruise. Um, And so you have an idea of what an autistic savant is and is capable of. That was based on a real person named Kim Peek. And such people are fascinating examples of what the brain is capable of. And they, they raise deep questions about what consciousness actually is and what our relationship to it is and what the brain's interface relationship with it is. So we're going to talk about those things for a little while, and then we're going to shift into the the implications that I just alluded to regarding consciousness. And I bet sure we can go two hours doing that. So let's start with the first part. 
For instance, let's start with Raymond, since I first mentioned him, Kim Peek. He had 14,000 books memorized. He could recite them frontwards or backwards. He could read two books simultaneously, one with each eye, and have complete photographic memory of them, and a million other things, some of which were portrayed in the movie. Take it from there. Tell us more. Well, one of the things that's fascinating about Kim Peek is that we have brain imaging on him, and so we know what his brain looked like. And it turns out he actually didn't have autism. He had hydrocephalus, which is a condition in which the brain doesn't reabsorb the cerebral spinal fluid that's circulating the brain. It actually builds up and applies pressure to the brain, which gets squeezed against the skull. And so as a consequence of having congenital hydrocephalus, his head was so large and heavy that he couldn't hold it upright for the first uh, few years of his life. So it actually increased the size of his skull? Yes. Hmm. And what's interesting about that is that his bones of his skull were a little more separated from one another than would be the case in someone who has them all fused. And then the other thing is that he was born without a corpus callosum, which is the major band of fibers that connect the left and the right hemisphere. And when you look at the MRI of his brain, you see that he's got a huge hole in the center. And Filled what with cerebrospinal I, fluid. Yes. And what I found really fascinating about this is that he had such an incredible memory And if you look at neuroscience's model for memory, it's all about connections between neurons. So you would think that somebody who has such a superior memory would have more connections rather than fewer ones. And when I learned this about Kim Peek, I then looked into some work that was done by a British neurologist named John Lorber. He studied over 600 cases of people with hydrocephalus. And many of them were so severe that their cortex, which is the outermost layer of the brain, which a lot of people think of as where higher thought processes occur. The wrinkly part um, that people are familiar with if they see the brain. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The really corrugated yeah. part of the brain. It was one three hundred and fiftieth of the thickness of a normal cortex. And yet this subject that was studied by him had a superior IQ. Oh, yeah. The guy, like he was a 126 or 136 or something, and he was accomplished academic and so on, but he just had this really thin cerebral cortex. Exactly. John Lorber studied over 600 people with hydrocephalus, and half of them had a normal IQ or better than normal IQ. And so then it makes you really wonder about how does the brain really function? So I started off by looking at autistic savants, and I ended up going down this other sort of rabbit hole, if you will, of looking at, you know, what really is the processing unit of the brain? I mean, we've made such a big thing about neurons, but neurons are only 10% of the cells that are in the brain. The majority of the cells, 90%, are glial cells, and we're just now starting to understand some of their function better. But I propose that we really need to go into the neuron itself and look at the the intracellular components of the neuron if we really want to look at how we process information. And I'm not the only one who's thinking that way. Stuart Hameroff is somebody who's looking at microtubules. I'm interested in the microtubules working in conjunction with neuromelanin. 
neuromelanin is related to the melanin that's in our skin that gives us pigmentation. In the brain, the neuromelanin is what makes gray matter gray matter as opposed to white matter. And then there's these pigmented cells that are in the brainstem. And what we've learned, we've known this for actually three decades now, what we know about neuromelanin is that it can function as a semiconductor. In other words, it can help by transmitting a signal that could be vibration, or it could be light, or it could be electrical, and basically shifting it into another um, signal. So basically, it's like the circuitry is more like semiconductors in the devices that we use. So therefore, as we know, we can have increasingly tiny devices performing increasingly sophisticated artificial intelligence. So we, we really have to rethink the brain if you can get by with so little tissue. A couple of thoughts on that. Have you heard of Mauro Zapatero's work on cerebral spinal fluid? He speaks at SAND, the Science and Non-Duality Conference, quite regularly. And um, he uh, has some whole theory about the significance of the cerebral spinal fluid in developing higher consciousness and so and how it might relate to Kundalini and all kinds of things. I, I just thought of it when you mentioned Kim Peek's situation. Another thought that came to mind as you were speaking was, and we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to this, which is that over and over again, when it seems that when the brain is limited in its function in certain ways, new abilities or new perceptions or new capabilities blossom all of a sudden. Even um, Jill Bolte-Taylor, when she had that stroke, and all of a sudden she had sort of a self-realization experience that she hadn't had before. So you know, that kind of relates to the notion that the, the brain is is a filter of some sort, that part of the function of which is to kind of limit the amount of information we're able to deal with. Yes, that's correct. I share that way of thinking. I, if, you, if you look at the brain, the major neurotransmitter is GABA, which is inhibitory in nature. And the frontal lobes inhibit the, the posterior part of the brain. The left hemisphere inhibits the right hemisphere. And if you remove those normal inhibitions, you actually can have what's called acquired savant syndrome, where you have somebody who is just an ordinary person who suddenly is able to do mathematics after a head injury yeah, or, or able to play the piano or something. Play the piano. And, and so I think that these cases, these acquired savant syndromes are really telling us something and that we really, in, in devising theories, we really need to be able to explain them as well. Let's hear some more stories of different types of savants and some of their capabilities, because we'll really get into the implications of all this, but it'd be interesting to hear some more stories. So I think one of the stories that really had a profound effect on me was one by Oliver Sacks, who studied these two identical twins who were institutionalized. And when he met them, they had this game in which they would say six-digit prime numbers and one twin would say one number, and then the other twin would come right back with the prime number that you would find in sequence. Yeah. Let's just and add that a go, prime number is a number that can be divided only by the number one or by itself. And it takes a lot of computing power to figure out 
prime numbers once you get into many digits. Yes. And so at the time, I mean, this was just astounding. And Oliver Sacks went back and looked at a prime number table and, and came back to the twins with an eight digit prime number and said the, the number to them. And then within a very short period of time, they started tossing back eight digit prime numbers back and forth. And he tested them up through 12 digits, which is the capacity of computers at the time. This was in the 60s. But the twins actually gave prime numbers in the 20 digits. So, so there, there's this question of how is it that they had these numbers just appearing to them? They said that they weren't calculating them, that, that the numbers just uh, showed up. And there's no really good algorithm for computing a prime. There's algorithms for recognizing a prime, but, but they're not for computing one. Even now? Oh, yes, even now. Wow. And then the same twins had the ability to calculate calendar dates spanning how many thousand years? 80,000 <laughs> or some such thing? Yes. So, and, so that you could name a date like 20, 30, 40,000 years ago, and they would tell you whether it was a Thursday or a Tuesday or what day of the week Easter would have fallen on in that year or whatever. Exactly. And there are some algorithms for calendar calculation, but what's really important for understanding is that the experience of these twins doing calendar calculation was not that they were doing any kind of calculation in their head. The answers just, come, just to come to them. So what does that tell you, that the answers just come to them? I have some theories, but I'd like to hear yours. Well, it, it's as though we live in an informational field mm -hmm. and that they're reading that field ra rather than generating the information. Now, calendars are a man-made thing, obviously, based upon the movement of planets and, and so on in our particular solar system. In every other solar system in the universe, calendars would behave differently. But somehow that information was there in the field, accessible by these kids. Yes. And they also were capable of an, another thing that Oliver Sacks witnessed them do is and, and this was actually in Rain Man. It was used in the Rain Man movie where he spilled a box of matches. And they both in unison said 110. They, got, they could see the number, yeah. They could just immediately see the number, and they, and they both said it at the same time. In your book, you also mentioned being able to determine the number of jelly beans in a jar or something, just like that. Which yes. is really weird because, I mean, you can't even see all the jelly beans. Most of them are not on the outside against the glass. They're some, somewhere in there, but they're able to come up with accurate numbers. Yes. It reminds me of this one woman I know who wrote a book about her son, Ryan, who is autistic. And she was struggling in the 90s with a son who was autistic and, and was told that she should institutionalize him and that he, he'd never amount to anything. And she refused to do that. She worked with him, and now he's an aerospace engineer. Wow. And one of the things he did when he was really small, like a, like a year old, was he would take boxes, like boxes of cereal and, and things like that, and spill it on the floor. And she just thought he was acting out. And it wasn't until he was older that she found out that he was actually doing experiments and determining volume. Wow. That's amazing. 
I used to spill sugar on the floor to watch the ants come along and make little <laughs> trails for them, but I, I, I wasn't able to calculate the number of grains of sugar. <laughs> and I'm not an aerospace engineer now. Let's think of some other examples. So there have been people who, you mentioned one fellow who is blind, who is able to play any song if he's heard it once, like he heard Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto Number 1 one time and was able to sit down and just play it. And he can play any song he's ever heard, thousands of them, and an audience can call out a, a name of a song and he'll just play it. Or they can play a song he's never heard on their cell phone and then he can sit down and play it. Yes, that's Leslie Lemke. And, and what's astounding about his story is that he was not only born blind, but he had severe cerebral palsy and really could barely move his body in a functional way. And his mother, um, he had an adopted mother because he was abandoned by his biological mother. And she was just such an amazing person. She worked with him to teach him how to walk. And she was she would sit with him at the piano and and just help him with like hitting the keys. And he wasn't really doing very much. I mean, but she, she was just trying to help him learn how to use his body. And one day she woke up and she heard music coming out of the uh, living room and she thought that she must have left the radio on and it was him playing this uh, masterpiece (laughs) that he had heard. Just like that. And then there was that guy, I think his name was Daniel Tammet or something, who could sit there and recite pie for like six or eight hours. Yes, Daniel Tammet, he has won the record for the most um, digits of pie, which is a non-repeating number. And he's recited it to over 22,000 digits. And he says that it's not that he memorized it. It's that instead he sees the numbers in front of him, but he doesn't see them as numbers. He sees each number has its own unique shape and color. So he he has a condition called synesthesia. That's the pairing of uh, one sense with another. So, So there are lots of people who... We'll, we'll see colors around letters, and it's consistent within that individual. In other words, if they see E as, a, as blue, then they'll always see E as blue. And it's so consistent and persistent that they think everybody sees the world this way. And so in Daniel Tammet's case, he doesn't have to memorize any numbers. They just appear like a ticker tape parade mm-hmm. in front of him. And he's also the one who has learned a bunch of languages, isn't he? Yes, yes. Um, I think I saw that. something about him on TV, and they did something where they sent him to Iceland for a week, and he came back speaking Icelandic, which is a very difficult language. It's really remarkable. I mean, one of the children that I have uh, investigated is a little boy named Ramses, and when I met him, he was five years old. And his mother reported that starting at the age of two, he knew the alphabets and could read eight different languages. And the languages were <laughs> uh, Russian, Japanese, Hindi, Arabic. Wow. Yes. That's amazing. So there again, these languages are unique to our planet, presumably, and there are probably trillions of languages throughout the universe. But somehow, at least in the collective consciousness of our planet, it would seem that these languages reside somewhere in that field and can be accessed by certain people. And with regard to pi, that would be a universal thing, just as Fibonacci numbers and so on would be a universal thing. So presumably someone on Alpha Centauri could tap into that also. But again, so it's leading us to the point 
that knowledge is not merely stored in the brain, it's stored in the field. And the brain is like a receiver transmitter for that field. Exactly. I mean, I, I think that the way that I think of the brain now is sort of like our, like our smartphone, for example. Yeah. You're tuning into the cloud, basically, mm-hmm. where the information is. There's an interesting phrase in the Rig Veda reverse, which says something like that all the impulses of intelligence, which are responsible for the manifestation and orchestration of the universe, reside in the akasha, in the, in the transcendental akashic field. And um, that if you don't know that field, then all these impulses of intelligence can't really be of much use to you. But if you do know it, then they, they come into play to you know, enhance your life. So people were onto this a long time ago. The deeper I've gotten into this, the more impressed I've been with the fact that people who lived thousands of years ago had so much knowledge that we've lost. And that's one of the things I have a passion for is really taking what's cutting edge scientific discoveries and then looking at what the ancients knew. I mean, I think a good example of that is Ayurvedic medicine, where we're seeing that a lot of the practices actually now with functional medicine being the the future of medicine, that a lot of it's really Ayurvedic medicine, um, that we, we need to detox, that there's various herbs and nutrients that are essential for our health, just various practices that, that can give you a healthier mind, body, and spirit. Obviously, there's a lot that we don't know about how the universe works, whether we're a savant or a regular scientist or what. The amount we know is probably a tiny fraction of what potentially could be known, and we're learning new things all the time. But it would seem that all of that knowledge, if you want to call it knowledge, or all of the sort of the laws of nature that had to be there in order for the creation to emerge and evolve in an orderly way are somehow intrinsic to the ground state from which the universe arose. So there's that. But then, in addition to that, it would seem that we continually contribute to that field or to some field so that someone could learn a bunch of languages having, if he could tap into that field or could play piano or something. He's accessing something which probably other human beings contributed to the field. So I guess my question to sum it up is that on the one hand, it seems that if we're presuming that there is some kind of ground state of natural law, which contains all the information in the universe or all the intelligence needed to govern the universe, a lot of it is fundamental and original, but it's being added to all the time through the activities of the various beings who inhabit the universe. What do you think about that? I'm in total agreement. I think when you look at things like, for example, the 20-digit prime numbers that these twins were able to access, I don't think any human being had ever done that before. So that wasn't a, um, a thought that had been encoded in the field. But that was probably more of just them picking up the patterns and, and picking up information that's inherent to how the universe works, as you said. But then when you have things like languages that those are man-made, and they basically, after having so many millions of people thinking those languages, that that information becomes part of the the field. 
I think of it as a holographic field. And, and by that, what I mean is that all of the information is contained in every point of it. Yeah, we can, perhaps we can elaborate on that as we go along. Tell us a little bit about Haley, and then we'll swing back to ontological considerations again. But Haley was a fascinating person that you've worked with. Yes. So Haley was someone who actually was, the father contacted me, and the father is actually a psychiatrist like me, and he had trained where Daryl Treffert was, and so he contacted Daryl Treffert as well. And so both Daryl and I evaluated Haley, and we're really impressed with her. When the father contacted me, he, he told me this story of how he, he was aware of autistic savant syndrome, and he has the daughter who had the regressive form of autism and nonverbal. But she was being taught how to express language by using first starting with a, a stencil board where she would point to various letters, and then she, was progress, she progressed on to being able to independently type onto um, something like an iPad. And the therapist who was working with her on acquiring knowledge was working with her on math and noticed that she couldn't do simple addition or subtraction, but that when she gave her more complex mathematical equations to solve, that she would get the answer correct. And so that is, by definition, a mathematical savant, somebody who can solve mathematical problems without the, the rudimentary arithmetic <laughs> that, that you would think that you would need to do that. And so the, the father encouraged this therapist to keep working with Haley, and, and she was just going along doing this in an amazing way. And then one day, the therapist, uh, she was using a calculator in order to get the answers, and she, she had to change calculators and when she changed, the one that she used gave her the answer in logarithmic notation. And it was out of Haley's sight. And what Haley typed was the answer in logarithmic notation. And the therapist said, how did you do that? She said, it's as though you can read my mind. And Haley said, I can see the numerators and denominators in your head. And then the therapist started asking her questions like, well, what's the name of my landlord? And what am I thinking of now? And, and she got it exactly right. Yeah. Which and how do you say the, I love you in German? I think she did yes, that well, one too, right? So that was the second therapist. So what happened was is that the, the, the first therapist told the parents and they first were astounded and then, and then checked it out. And they're like, oh my gosh. And there was a second therapist who started working with Haley who independently came to the same conclusion because she saw that Haley would make her same mistakes. If she, was, if she made a spelling mistake or something like that, Haley would do it exactly the same way that she did. And she asked her, she said, that's as though you read my mind. She says, how do you say I love you in German? And, and Haley typed it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that gave me two independent therapists to conduct studies with and, and to, to formally test her on on her abilities. Seriously, you know, if we think of the brain as being like a radio that receives, you know, information through the electromagnetic field, although in this case it's the consciousness field, you know, you don't usually enhance the, the functioning of the radio by pulling out some transistors or, you know, bashing it up a little bit with a hammer or something like that. But in this case, you know, various types of what we would consider brain damage seem to enhance certain abilities profoundly at a cost, but to enhance them. 
Yeah, I, th I think that um, what a, probably a better analogy for that would be that um, if you've got too many um, programs or apps running on your computer or phone, um, then then it slows down the um, functional capacity. Mm. And so by shutting off some of those programs, it, it, it may be that it gives more of the juice, <laughs> in other words, to something else. Yeah, but, we did that also, right before we started today. I closed up everything I wasn't using because I wanted the recording software to have the full firepower of the computer. Exactly. So this is like, for example, the blind savant syndrome. In order to explain that, how is it that just the fact that you are blind from birth, why does that give you these amazing musical abilities? And what, what happens is, is that the visual cortex is an extremely complex cortex for doing computational sorts of things, and it doesn't go to waste. So what happens is, is as soon as somebody becomes blind, the auditory system and other sensory systems starts recruiting the visual cortex and gives you these remarkable abilities. That doesn't happen with everybody, obviously. I mean, we don't have hundreds of thousands of Stevie Wonders and Ray Charles is running around. It just seems to happen in some cases. That's true. I mean, that, it'd be really interesting to try to understand why, why some people develop the blind savant syndrome and, and other people who are blind don't. There have been blind seers, too, people who were just like there are people who are autistic savants who then have these other abilities where they get information that you just don't know how they could possibly know it. Similarly for blind savants, they're the blind seers. So I, I think that what happens is, is that when you're inhibited from accessing information in the usual way that, that we have the default mechanisms that, that we can fall back on. I, I think if you probably, if you go back evolutionarily to ancient man, some of these abilities that people think of as being impossible now, that they, they probably were much more commonplace. And certainly there's a lot of evidence for animals being able to be in communication with one another in a way that's, that's very different from the way that we, you know, it's kind of a proto-language sort of way. Or like Rupert Sheldrake's, you know, dogs that know when their owners are coming home. I interviewed Rupert and he explained that in some detail, but basically they do careful experiments. So there's no obvious cues that the owner is coming home. It's all randomized and so on. But, you know, as soon as the owner has the intention to come home and starts coming home, the dog goes and sits by the door. There's no way it could know, but it very highly statistically relevant response by the dog. Absolutely. And it's not just dogs, it's cats. It's, I think, even did research with a parrot. And what seems to really promote that communication is there being some kind of a bond. Yeah. That. Yeah. So what we're getting at here then is some sort of um, telepathy, I guess we would say, which is one of the chapters in your book. It focuses on that topic. And all these things are related, I think, but they're just different flavors or aspects of various abilities that make us question the conventional wisdom, quote-unquote, of what the brain is and what it's capable of. Yes, yes, I agree. And I, I think that there's some survival value in, in a lot of these abilities. There are a lot of women who have, uh, after childbirth, they have this connection with their infant. I, I had this with my daughter that I would just wake up and go into her room 
just before she would start to cry or, or, or you know, if she was sick, without any knowledge that she was sick. But, but, but I, I just go in there. And a lot of the people who have dream telepathy, it's in the setting of a crisis with a loved one that they'll, that they'll have, a, they'll wake up in a nightmare that somebody has died. And, and in fact, that's how the electroencephalograph was actually created by Hans Berger who was um, in the military, and his sister sent him a telegram asking if he was okay right after he'd had a near-miss accident in which he could have been killed by some horses that uh, reared up. So he thought, well, (laughs) this must be electromagnetic, was his thinking. And so he came up with the EEG, which records the electromagnetic signal at the surface of our skull. And then there are stories of twins who are separated at birth who go on to have these lives that are remarkably in parallel with absolutely no communication with one another. And there's, that's an example of some people who had a bond. Go ahead and uh, tell us a, a story or two about that. The twins, identical twins, raised apart. I mean, it's just so phenomenal. There have been over 67 um, of these case studies that have been written about. And the one that's probably the most famous are the Jim twins. What is remarkable is that they married women with the same names, got divorced, then their second wives had the same name, named their dogs the same name, drove the same kind of car, went to the same <laughs> same location for vacations. Even before they met, they both felt this compulsion to build a white circular structure around a tree. A bench, yeah. Yeah, a bench. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. I don't have a problem with any of this stuff. I don't consider myself a gullible or naive person, but I've just been studying and thinking about and experiencing consciousness for so much of my life that all this stuff is kind of second nature to me. As a matter of fact, I once had an experience relevant to something we were just talking about, meditating in a pitch dark room with my eyes closed and all of a sudden being able to see the room and see the details of where the furniture are and stuff like that. Although I certainly don't have that kind of thing regularly. But, you know, many people do. And it it clashes with the current materialist paradigm. And that's why there's so much skepticism, resistance, and derision, and and so on. In fact, who was it? Schopenhauer. I quoted this from your book. He said, all truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. And even something like meditation itself, when I first learned it and started teaching it, it was... uh, really kooky woo-woo stuff for the vast majority of people. But now you have, you know, yoga classes in every street corner. You know, a lot of stuff is, you know, the knowledge of stress in the nervous system as being an impediment to its normal functioning, which is pioneered by Hans Selye, has become kind of mainstream. And all kinds of ideas have seeped into our collective understanding that were originally considered um, unusual or questionable. Yes, and um, I'm one of about 350 scientists who signed a manifesto several years ago, basically saying that we all agree that there is sufficient evidence that the materialist paradigm is dead. Elaborate a bit and also tell us how that was received or not by... by (laughs) (laughs) Well, we established our own academy, um, the Academy for the Advancement of Postmaterialist Sciences, 
And the, the members of that academy are people whose names I mean, most of your listeners would recognize, people like Dean Radin and Larry Dossi and uh, Julia Mossbridge and Menas Kafatos. So people who are, who are scientists who really have been looking at this from multiple different disciplines. And we realized that, you know, maybe we're, we're trying to swim upstream by getting the, the established scientific academy to accept all of the, I mean, there's a wealth of information and evidence out there. And for us to just sort of be waiting for their approval, we, we decided we'd go ahead and start our own academy. That's great. I'm going to email you about that later because I'd like to know more about it. I could even put a link to it on, on your page on BAPGAP if you want, if it has a website. Yeah. Yes, and we, we actually, each of us who was attended this, so there were about 13 of us who attended a meeting in Tucson. Uh, Gary Schwartz and Marjorie Wolcott were um, the, the two people that were leading the meeting, and they were the co-editors of a scientific volume that each of us contributed a chapter to. Basically, telling a little bit about our reasons for changing our, our paradigm. I mean, some of us grew up with a paradigm in which we believed um, these sorts of things already. But I grew up as a, I grew up as with a father who was a scientist, very much a materialist. I grew up an atheist. Uh, I really had no background at all to make me believe any of these things. And it was really through my, my work as a doctor and particularly being somebody who does psychotherapy and working with people who've been traumatized and people who have autism and various other conditions, that I started to really question what I, I had been told was, was the way that things work. Because the old paradigm just really it, it can't account for a lot of things that are scientifically accepted. Autistic savants are scientifically accepted because it's reliably reproducible. And yet, you can't explain it with our current model. And so one of the reasons why I went into medicine was wanting to, um, I'm, I'm, I've always, I've been groomed to be a scientist and, I, and I've always wanted to make a contribution. And to me, how you make a contribution is you look in the areas where other people are afraid to look sometimes because that's where the, the controversial areas is always what eventually becomes the future science. And, and you, might, you might pick the wrong controversy to pursue, but I looked at some of these things, like, for example, autistic savants, and I said, wow, that is so similar to, in terms of how astounding it is, to psychic abilities. Why do we discount psychic abilities? Incidentally, for the listeners... Half of the people that Diane just mentioned have been on BatGap, Marjorie Willicott and Dean Radin and Menos Kafatos and some of the others. So you can look them up on BatGap if you want to watch their interviews. One thing that seems to me is that this whole idea of whether, you know, the materialist paradigm is obsolete and we need a new paradigm in which consciousness is fundamental and material is sort of the material universe is emergent from consciousness rather than the other way around is it's not just an interesting sort of academic exercise or something that will enable us to understand the universe better. It is that. But there are dramatic implications and ramifications to it that could completely revamp the whole structure of our world and have a, a profound impact on many of the dire problems that threaten to do us in. We could elaborate on that topic maybe for a few minutes. Do you also feel that way? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I think that we're, we're living in a very critical time period now for, for mankind. We have these clashing worldviews. And what's happened is, is that increasingly over the course of my career, I've seen people become more and more demoralized and, and feel more and more disempowered by things that are really a result of the materialist perspective on things. And if you really change the way that you think about consciousness, you start to realize that we really are capable of creating, and I'm not talking about things that are woo-woo, I'm just saying that we're able to, but depending upon what we focus, we tend to create more of that. And oh, so if, if we focus on... <laughs> we're that, focusing that to on, which you give your attention grows stronger in your life. That's right. And so look at all of the informational overload that we have with the technology that we have. I mean, we could just be spending all of our time taking in information, a lot of which is propaganda, misinformation, and taking all of that in and really disconnected from an inner knowing from the knowledge that we can access if we really quiet our mind and, and really go within and we commune with nature, if, if we actually interact with real people in live settings, we are actually promoting things that to me are much more life-sustaining and more uplifting. But there's a lot of toxic stuff out there. And then the pursuit, of the consumerism, this pursuit of, oh, I've got to have the latest technology. I've got to, I don't want to be out of data this and that. <laughs> you, you look at what that's doing also to our environment. I oh. laugh because every Christmas, you know, they always have all these news stories about the pitched battles in Walmart or Best Buy over the latest gadget and people are breaking down the doors and then like going at each other to grab it, you know, the biggest, latest TV or something like that. I think, oh my God, you know, it's so crazy. Yes. <laughs> You know, what might be interesting is to take a few minutes to sort of contrast some of the assumptions of the materialist paradigm with the assumptions or perspectives of its opposite. Do we have a one-word name for this new paradigm like we have for the materialist paradigm? Not sure that we do. I'm not sure that we do either. All right. No. Maybe we'll come up with one. Gary Schwartz talked about post-materialism, and then there's different theories within post-materialism. So he also asked us which of those three fundamental categories did we agree with. So the first one is really one in which you're looking into things like quantum physics as a, as a way for understanding uh, the way the brain functions, for example. Getting away from this very simplistic neuronal process. To me, I, you know, I look at the model that materialists use now, and I think of it as like a clunky Rube Goldberg sort of contraption, you know, <laughs> that you have this neuron send a neurotransmitter to that neuron, and you, know, and you have the axial potential go along. And if you think of the brain operating that way, it's like, how can you get from that to anything resembling you know, what our experience of consciousness is, let alone allowing any of these other things to happen? So allowing for quantum processes, whether they're occurring in the microtubules, um, which Stuart Hameroff is a big proponent of, or in the glial cells, which there are other researchers who believe that the glial cells are involved in that. So that's a type one theory. 
A type two theory is one in which you're looking at consciousness and, and you're actually allowing for, you're, you're saying that a, a lot of these phenomena are, are real. Things like telepathy and, and precognition and et cetera, et cetera. But in a lot of that stuff, you can't really describe based on quantum mechanics. Quantum physics um, helps to explain some things, but you can't really explain all of those things using, using those principles. So you have to take it to a next level. And the third type of theory is basically saying that consciousness is really primary and fundamental, that we've been asking the question the wrong way, that it's not so much that the brain creates consciousness, it's that consciousness creates the brain. An interesting story that I tell is that when I was thinking about this question of could consciousness be primary, I, I look outside of just the human experience. I ran into this article about a sea squirt that lives a lot of its life in a sedentary fixed way. But then when it needs to relocate, move to another section of the sea, it literally grows a brain that actually looks like a little miniature brain, and then it becomes mobile. And then once it's become sedentary in a place that's more favorable for life, then it reabsorbs the brain. And that made me think, well, what if, you know, the brain is really a way, it's a navigational tool. So it's just what information are we trying to navigate? And the fact that the brain can be created and reabsorbed and recreated as needed, I mean, what's creating it? It has to be some kind of a field. Some, the information for creating the brain, it must be existing before the brain. Wouldn't people argue that it's just in the DNA um, of the sea squirt or whatever it was called that... It's programmed to grow a brain when it needs one? Well, yeah, I think that, I think that people would, would argue that. And I'm really using it more as a metaphor than I am that that's how everything operates. But at the same time, you know, let's look at how does DNA code for things? I was part of the, I'm also somebody who's a geneticist. I was part of the Human Genome Project and did some, you know, learned how to do molecular biology. Because I was looking for, when I saw that I couldn't find the answers in the brain or I didn't think neuroscience was asking all the questions, and I looked to genetics. And you know, what we discovered there was that the human genome is only about 20,000 genes and that we share a high percentage of those genes with plants. You know, just the mustard plant shares about half of our genetics. And there are actually plants that are out there that have more genes than us. So that's when scientists started to realize that the genes contain some information, of course, but what's controlling the genes? And then that's when people started looking at what was called junk DNA. And that's really considered to be the control mechanisms for the genes, the on and off switches, and that's about 90% of the chromosome is, is junk DNA, which is similar to the glial cells versus the neurons, where you have the, the neurons are only 10%, and they're surrounded by these glial cells, which actually are more interconnected than the neurons. And in fact, they work more like a, a syncytium, which is a, you know, an organized unit. So they're able to spread information across the entire brain very, very quickly. And they actually, we now think of a synapse as not being two neurons coming together, but there's actually a process from a glial cell that there's monitoring the synapse. 
so using the glial cells as an analogy to the junk DNA, because glial cells were just, their name comes from glue. They were also thought to be just, you know, what's holding it all together. And so now Bloody. we see that, no, there's really much <laughs> going on there. And what I'm proposing is that I think we're studying now junk DNA, we're studying glial cells, and I think that that's a worthwhile endeavor. But then what's controlling the glial cells and what's controlling the junk DNA? I like that line of questioning is like, you just keep taking a step back and you eventually kind of get down to some very fundamental considerations. First of all, before going on with that, when you, when you were outlining those three theories a few minutes ago, I thought, well, all these can be correct. They're just describing different aspects of the one phenomenon or of, a, of the bigger picture. They're just different aspects of the thing. You could take any field of knowledge, I think, and you could make a chart that traces what it knows down to, you know, what's causing this. Okay, and then what's causing that? And you go more and more fundamental. And eventually you get down to fundamental physics and force and matter fields and so on. And then what do those arise from? Okay, well, there's something even more fundamental. There's sort of grand unification of, some, of three of those fields uh, into one field. And, and then that and the grand unification plus gravity ultimately get unified into something even more fundamental. So there's, there's always a kind of a hierarchical path that you can take from any spoke on the wheel down to the hub. As you do so, I think that there are tremendous advantages in terms of knowledge and in terms of making sense of everything, because if you're out on the spokes, all the spokes are disconnected. All the branches of knowledge seem fragmented, you have to specialize more and more to, to excel in any one of them. And then you're completely disconnected from all the other specialists on all, on all the other branches. No harm in specializing, but if you can somehow do that and at the same time get down to the real nitty gritty, get down to the essence of your, your field, you will find that that is also the essence of all the other fields and that they all sort of branch out from a common source. And there's a kind of a, a beauty and a synchrony to them all, which you can't find otherwise. Exactly. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I've studied so many different branches of knowledge within the sciences. I, in order to become a medical doctor, it's like going to graduate school and everything. And, and you know, you're, you're studying anatomy, biochemistry, yeah. <laughs> physiology, all of these different microbiology. You're studying all of these different fields. And then with pathophysiology and, and clinical science, what you're studying is you, the mistakes of nature that show you when, when you have something that is an aberrant, you know, it, something's different about it, and then you actually see what happens as a result of that, then you've got more information as well. And so I'm, I'm very much a multidisciplinarian and have been, have used my knowledge as a neuropsychiatrist to look at all of these conditions, you know, whether we're talking, I mean, I look at in, in my book, The SP Enigma, I talk about various conditions like fugue states, where you have these people who seem to be able to, you know, they can buy a ticket and fly somewhere else and start a new life, you know, and then all of a sudden, they're, they're not even fully conscious of what they're doing. And then they come out of it and they're like, how did I get here? It's really like a, it's like sleepwalking on steroids. <laughs> and so who's operating the, the machinery behind that? And I could just go on and on. You know, what is multiple personality? You know, why is it that you can have somebody who has one personality that is 
highly allergic to something and they've got rashes and, and then they switch personalities and that one's not allergic and then all of a sudden their body normalizes. All of these things really raise the question of what is the relationship between mind and the body. And, and so I, I feel like that's put me in a really unique position for asking some of these questions. And then similarly, when it comes to spirituality, um, having been raised as an atheist and then having had some experiences that made me really wonder, you know, it, it, is this all there is? There's got to be something more. I studied the various world religions looking for universal truths. And to me, most people don't have the, the patience or the time or whatever to do that. But I, I, I truly am somebody who my passion really is, is really bridging across dis, different disciplines and, and, and really trying to understand the hub that, that really connects everything. Yeah, mine too, though, although I've never pursued it in as academic a way as you have, but I've dwelt on this notion for a long time now. Coming back to an earlier point, I, I really think it has earth-shaking implications. To take a simple example or metaphor, you know, before we understood that the sun was the center of the solar system, the movements of the planets didn't make much sense. They would go retrograde and it was really hard to figure out why they were moving the way they were. But once we put the sun at the center, then these nice, beautiful ellipses emerged and we could understand how they're going around. So there's a lot of things in our world that are out of whack. The way we treat the environment, the way we treat people, our economic systems, our political systems, so on and so forth. You could go down any avenue and see that it's out of whack. And personally, I think that all these things are a manifestation of human consciousness. People create them out of the condition that they themselves are in. And collectively, we create these larger things. And, you know, if we're all out of touch with our essence, with our true self, with our core being, then we're going to be creating messes and disasters. There's a verse in the Gita that says, um, for many branched and endlessly diverse are the intellects of the irresolute, but the resolute intellect is one-pointed. So I think that if resolute intellect or people established in the self kind of residing in the, in the ground of being the home of all the laws of nature, whatever you want to call it, were the norm, then a completely different world would manifest from there with completely different economic, political, environmental, and so on kinds of policies. I agree. I agree. It's very concerning to me to see how, like, for example, you mentioned politics and how divided our country is. And, and, and you have people with very different narratives. And what's happening is, is that people are becoming more and more entrenched in what they believe and not willing to even look at what the other person has to say because they just discount it, discount the other person without even knowing them. And there's, there isn't the same kind of nuanced sort of discussions about things and that, that there needs to be to, to be able to move past these kinds of impasses. I think when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, what he might have been indicating is that your neighbor is yourself. If you actually get right down to who you are and who your neighbor is, you're the same essence, fundamentally. And when you realize that experientially, then naturally you actually do love everyone and everything rather universally. That's one of the universal principles, I think, of most spirituality. It really it comes back to that. I do think that you know, that, that the Tibetan saying that um, if you throw a hot coal at someone, you're the one who burns your hand. Yeah, yeah. So I, I really think that shifting the paradigm is, is really critical. And that's 
one of the reasons I was doing a lot of experimental work, but I've, I've put more of my emphasis, I'd say more recently, into the theoretical work because getting scientists to see that, yeah, you're right, that makes sense. But by using a scientific argument that really uses facts that they accept and then building from that. And I think, I think that we living in this kind of post-truth world that we do, that we really need to get down to what are the fundamentals, what do we know, and build from there. I'm sure you're familiar with Thomas Kuhn, the, the structure of scientific revolutions, and his notion that entrenched paradigms don't just change on a whim or yeah. because someone says they don't like them anymore. They, they have to be buffeted by repeated anomalies that completely contradict their assumptions before they start to loosen up and budge and eventually shift. a shift takes place to a new paradigm. And so I mm-hmm. think, you know, that's what you're doing. You're sort of buffeting the you know, creating cracks in the, uh, in the existing <laughs> paradigm, as stubborn as it may be. And it is stubborn. We're, we're alluding to all these other, all these aspects of the world of economics and technology and so on. But even in academia, you risk your career if you start talking about this stuff in graduate school, you know, and a good chance you won't you can, you can tell me what might happen to a person, but you, you won't get funding or you won't get supported by your thesis advisor. And so there's this psychological terrorism that takes place among academics, it seems to me. There is. And that's one of the reasons why I left academics, because to me, um, how I define career is not so much about having the prestige of a professorship somewhere or the, um, the money that comes along with it, but I went into this because I really, truly wanted to understand these phenomena, and I, I really wanted to make a contribution, and, and, and whether or not that contribution gets recognized within my lifetime or not, at least I will have pursued the passion that I have and have been true to myself. And, and I, I think that yeah, I'm not the only individual who's that way. And Speaking of your lifetime, I forget who it was that said that science progresses through a series of funerals, but obviously you have progressed from atheists (laughs) to someone who, without having had to die, are you seeing that among your peers who, you know, might have been very stubborn and atheistic or materialistic, and then when presented with a certain weight of evidence begin to shift? Absolutely. I mean, and that's been one of the things that's been rewarding for me is that um, I've had a number of people who are scientists and fellow physicians who've read my book, and it it really opened them up to um, going, yeah, you've really got some good points here. And it it really opened up their, um, not only their their way of thinking, but then their experiences. Because I think that a lot of the reason why people don't have these experiences is because if you're convinced they're impossible, it's either that you, you, you're less likely to have them or you may not recognize them when they occur. And if you talk with a lot of mainstream scientists and say, well, have you ever had anything along these ways? So many of them have a story, but they just shelved it because it didn't really fit with anything else. Or they perhaps were intimidated by the reaction they might get if they were to talk about it. Right. And so one of the things that I did in my book was I talk about quantum physics and, and the relationship between consciousness and matter. I mean, that, and I mean, I'm sure you've had physicists talk about this on your program, of, of, of how we can collapse you know, potentiality into you know, a more discrete point, you know, whether we're talking about a photon or you know, electron. 
John Wheeler is saying, you know, that, you know, we're co-participants in the universe. And so that understanding in physics occurred a century ago, and, and yet we haven't really caught up in the biological sciences. And, and so that's one of the things that I'm a big proponent of. And, and I think in part it's because there's been so much of the funding in the biological sciences and in other sciences as well is by companies that are really um, like pharmaceutical companies that the old paradigm fits what their agenda is basically. And it's not academic centers have become less about knowledge for knowledge's sake and, and, and more about, you know, practical knowledge. So the economic but, motive, yeah. Yes, but if you really look at the effect that it's having on people, I, I really think that it's, it's time now to have sort of a, an applied <laughs> knowledge of these things. And, and one of the things I've talked with other clinicians about is something called clinical parapsychology. So we might be having a panel at the Parapsychological Association on clinical parapsychology this year. And that's really important, too, because... The way it is now is people who have these experiences, so it's not just the scientists who threaten their career, but I've seen people who go to see a psychiatrist and if they say things like, well, I I have this telepathic relationship with my horse or this or that, they get labeled psychotic. I had a patient who literally had that happen. She, She told someone she was seeing who was a pain specialist that. And he discounted her pain and said, sent her back to me and said, I think she needs antipsychotic. <laughs> uh, not only that kind of thing, but um, you know, people who start seeing angels or subtle beings or, or things like that, then they're really considered to be nutsoid. And yet I take those things quite for granted as being part of subtler aspect of reality beyond our ordinary sensual sensory capacities. Exactly. And so a lot of these children who are being, you know, been born over the last 20 years or so, I mean, there there are a lot of children who are increasingly, for whatever reason, reporting all kinds of experiences, whether it's seeing auras or seeing little fairies or whatever it is. And those are the kinds of things that people who are highly psychic reported. And these children, if, we, if we're just thinking, oh, well, we need to drug them and put them on antipsychotics or, or tell them that, you know, they're, they're crazy or somehow make them feel inferior, we're shutting them down. And they may be really showing us, you know, sort of our next evolution as human beings and, and what our capacity is. And, and we need to know how can we have people, if these phenomena are occurring with these, how can we have them be part of society? And perhaps they've got some gifts that could really help promote us into a really better future. But if, if we're treating them as though um, just off the bat, just without even, you know, I mean, surely some people are not functioning very well that have these things happen. But the reality is, is that to just have that be a foregone conclusion is really doing a disservice to them and, and to uh, all of us, really. It's so interesting how the avant-garde is, is so often resisted and suppressed and ridiculed and so on. You know, those are the ones who are really leading us into, you know, a new understanding or new capabilities and so on. And, you know, and that is not to say you just kind of said this, that someone might be having unusual perceptions and, yeah, actually kind of psychologically unstable or in need of some kind of therapy or treatment or something. Is it, we, we can't just blithely assume that any kind of abnormal experience is, is good. Um, but it needs to be sort of parsed out more carefully and not just so sort of 
thrown in the same basket. Yes. A question came in from someone, um, Paul in Breckenridge, Colorado. I don't know why he's not out skiing instead of listening to us. Um, <laughs> but he said, uh, you've spoken a lot about brain capacity and the way savants function. Do you have a perspective on the larger mind, capital M, that goes beyond the physical brain? We've kind of been talking about that. Perhaps we can elaborate a bit more. Um, when I say larger mind, the larger I mean, mind that goes beyond the physical. I think he would mean consciousness or the field that that is, you know, ubiquitous or at least much more vast than the confines of our skull. Yeah, I, I think that we. Um, first of all, I think that we really live in a sea of consciousness, and I think that that sea of consciousness, you know, might be what some people consider, you know, might call God. Um, and, and that there's this interaction that we can have with, with that um, larger mind. If you, if, so, for example, I think that when we meditate, um, that's when we can read the mind of oh, that God. larger consciousness. Oh, yeah. And when we pray, it's when we're putting out there our desires and our intentions to the mind. And so if you think of those two processes of meditating and prayer, and when people engage in those to a high degree, they feel more and more connected, you know, and even sometimes unified with that larger mind. Yeah, in your book, you alluded to a verse in the Yoga Sutras, which is that um, yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. And yoga means union. And then the verse right after that is, then the seer is established in the self or rests in the self. And so it's like if you're caught up in waves on the ocean, then you think you're just a wave. But if the waves settle down, then the ocean is just left by itself without waves. So you kind of, it's not like you tune into God or to the universal mind or to unbounded consciousness or whatever. The um, agitation which prevents it from recognizing itself through the instrumentality of, of your body mind, that agitation is diminished and reduced and eliminated eventually and then the self realizes the self by itself as a universal field yeah feel free to bring up anything at any time if you know if there's something that comes to your mind that i'm not asking a question just go ahead and launch into it a six-year-old boy with an encyclopedic knowledge of science reportedly without having studied any of the science that he knew so here again we either possibly have a a past life situation where the kid remembers maybe he was Einstein or somebody and now he, he's retaining what he knew in a past life, or he's tapping into what we've alluded to as a field of knowledge that kind of resides at the root of all of us, and he, he somehow had the ability to, to tap into it. Yeah, I would agree. I, I've worked with children like that who, who have this knowledge of science and they, they haven't been exposed to it. It's interesting because, I mean, when I first went over to India to evaluate these savants, that, that, that was um, the nature of some savants over there. But then what I discovered was that they, their parents reported that they were all telepathic, too. And then I, I realized, oh, well, that's a confounding variable because if I know something and I'm trying to access the information, you know, experimentally access the information from this child, how do I know that this child isn't just picking it up from me? Doing the experiments is really kind of tricky because then there's also this thinking that 
you're also not supposed to give them feedback and let them know if they were correct, because what if they're precognitive <laughs> and they're going into the future and to, you know yeah. what the answer was? So it really gets very complicated. But that whole question of, you know, is it just like I was saying with the prime numbers, is it that they're just tapping into, you know, this information that's out there? Or is it a past life? That comes up a lot. I mean, especially when you have a child like Ramsey's who, who could read and speak all of these different languages. I mean, it's just like, what prepares that? And so, you know, I think of us as all, we live in a holographic universe and we're all sort of, if you, if you look at fractals and, and holograms and you see how every component of it, of it has the, really the full expression of the whole, that it's really a matter of what are we focusing in on and why? You know, why is it that a six-year-old chooses science as a thing they're focusing in on? You know, they probably would have the capacity to tap into something else. And so is that just that that just happens to be what this child's interested in? His proclivity or or his his aptitude? Right. Or is there really kind of a common thread that goes through space-time that really is that common thread being this concept of a soul, you know, which in, in reincarnation, this concept of a soul that's just moving through and that it's easier for us to tap into anything that resonates with a previous life. Yeah. There's that notion of dharma that we have a particular course of action that is most appropriate for us, given our nature, given our makeup, that will be most conducive to our growth and our success and so on. And I imagine that certain dharmas carry on from life to life. We don't just shift erratically from one thing entirely into another. Right. That's one of the, um, in studying the Vedantas, and it was explained to me that this whole nature of desire and being born, you know, reincarnation, being born again, is that you can also be born again, reincarnated, because you wanted something so badly and you didn't complete it in the previous life. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you always wanted to be a fantastic basketball player and you die you know, before you get to live that, you know, uh, then just that desire is enough to bring you back because there's this uh, desire for completion. Yeah. And I think the vast majority of people, I mean, again, this is another one of those things that I take for granted and I talk about it as if it's the way it is, but people can feel free to differ. I think that the vast majority of people do come back again and again because the range of possibility for human evolution is vast and most of us are relative beginners or good you know, intermediates or whatever. Um, there are very few people, I think, who have reached a point at which there is no further growth possible or necessary in, in human form and that they, therefore they're out of here once and for all. Um, and so, you know, we probably pick up different skills and experiences and all in, in different lifetimes that I imagine certain things carry over in multiple lives, like Groundhog Day, you know, where Bill Murray had to kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again until he got it right. <laughs> right. Back in the days when I used to teach meditation, one of the benefits we touted was developing full mental potential. And it's interesting when we talk about these savants and, and people who have brain damage and so on who who attain these amazing abilities. I'm sure that many people listening to this have thought, well, geez, you know, it'd be nice to be able to attain all kinds of abilities without having to be handicapped in some way. And I wonder if you can envision a society in which it becomes the norm, and maybe you even see evidence of this beginning to emerge, in which it becomes the norm for people to have 
extraordinary capabilities and yet be well integrated and functional. Oh, I can definitely envision that. But I think that in some ways technology is steering us away from that. But at the same time, there are people working on technology to help promote that. And so it, it could go either way with the technology. Yeah, well, there's Ray Kurzweil and people like that who think that they're going to start replacing our body parts with electronic gizmos. Personally, I think that's off the mark. I don't think it's going to work out that way. Right, yeah, I agree with you. I, I just know, like when I'm saying that, um, like so for example, the military has been working on these helmets for soldiers that would enable them to be in communication with another soldier in a way in which it can't be intercepted by anyone else. So it can send a radio signal or something that can't be intercepted? So, for example, the brain, the way that it's wired is such that there's a fair amount of consistency. There's a lot of individual variation, but there's a fair amount of consistency such that with functional MRI, you can look at the way in which if you ask somebody to engage in a task, you can look at which regions of the brain get activated and in what sequence, okay? So they can tell by looking at an fMRI whether or not somebody is, for example, recalling something that happened versus fabricating it because you use the brain differently. Um, Similarly, um, if you are working with someone and you have um, sensory signals, let's say you, you give them a visual stimulus or an auditory stimulus, you'll see how that activates their brain. And once you know that, and then you can read that signal, then you can transmit that signal over to someone else who can then read it too. I think that it's, it's, it's not exactly telepathy, but, it, it, but it's a sort so of a, a technologically assisted telepathy. Yeah. Another yeah. example is I saw this, um, somebody sent me a clip from 60 Minutes of this person who was wearing this device on his head, and he would just think a thought of like uh, what is the capital of some country and what is its population. So he would surf the internet with this device just, you know, while he's thinking. Really? And then the computer screen would type out the answer. That's amazing to me because is it using EEG or what is it using? It must be using some kind, it must be picking up some kind of um, signal that they can detect at the skull. Because EEG is pretty crude. And I, I didn't realize it could possibly contain that kind of detailed information. Yeah, I, I invite you to look it up. It, it's, yeah, uh, I it's believe a you. I just minutes, wondering how uh, in the world that would work. Yeah. <laughs> so part of it could be this. When we think, there's research that's shown that we sub-vocalize. And it's not auditory, but that we actually, you know, like when we read, when we read silently to ourselves, that you hear a little voice in your head reading silently to yourself. So there actually is some sub-vocalization that's occurring when you do that. And so it, it could be that it's using some sensor, just like voice dictation technology, using that sensor that's picking up the sub-vocalizations, just like if we speak to Siri and say, Siri, tell me where I can get a good Starbucks uh, today. <laughs> It's something like that. But, but the point is, is that this ability to detect signals that our normal sensory system cannot, 
is being enhanced by technology. Yeah. It's said in the Vedic tradition that thinking or ordinary discursive thinking is just a, we're utilizing a subtler aspect of the sense of hearing. Mm-hmm. And if you visualize something without actually seeing it, like you can visualize the Grand Canyon right now or something, you're using a subtler aspect of the sense of seeing. And I think each of the senses has its subtler aspect, although we're more familiar with the subtler aspect of the sense of most people with the subtler aspect of the sense of hearing than, than the subtler aspects of the other senses. And that's why mantras are generally a, an effective tool for most people for meditation because they take the hearing sense and can follow it back down to its source. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and basically, you know, what you're picking up is vibration. Yeah, yeah. But the fact that some kind of contraption can actually detect that, I'll have to learn more about that. It's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Here's a question from Dan in London. Dan asks, is there anything within the new scientific paradigm, including any quantum mechanics theory, that can theorize the source of human emotions, such as love, compassion, humility, are these fundamental characteristics of consciousness? That's an interesting question. You know, our emotions, uh, and I, as a psychiatrist, I deal with emotions all the time. And one of the reasons why I don't think machines or computers will ever really feel emotions is because they, they don't have a heart. And I mean that quite literally. Incidentally, emotions are said to be the subtler aspect of the sense of touch, that thing I was just talking about. But continue. So what happens when people have an emotion is that it it really affects their physiology. And and the heart plays a huge component in that. So when we're we're angry or we're um, excited or we're anxious, the heart tends to speed up. So you have these changes in the heart as a pump that, that creates this, not only an electromagnetic signal, but it, but it also creates this vibration that you feel you know, as it's pumping. So what happens with emotion is that we feel a shift in our heart or in our gut or both that then we interpret as an emotion. But it's not an interpret. You know, we don't like go. Oh, you know, oh, what is that? Da, da, da. You know, it, it's it's an automatic thing. And what happens is is that depending upon the context, we label that emotion. So the physiology, for example, the physiology of a panic attack is exactly the same physiology as a rage attack. So you might have two people both of whom were driving down the freeway and they get cut off and they almost get killed. One person may pull off to the side and they're in panic and, 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 and they, they can't, they, they're immobilized, they're in the freeze state. But another person might go into rage and, and literally start trying to run that person off of the freeway themselves, they're so angry. But it's the same physiology. What's different is the psychology and the meaning that we attach to the emotion. So if you're someone, and it's more typically female than male, who tends to interpret something as fear, because it's not really acceptable for, I mean, it's been less acceptable for women to be rageful than it is for them to be afraid. Whereas with men, it's been more culturally acceptable within their own psychology to be angry rather than afraid. 
and women, it's, you know, it's the opposite. So the point is, is that emotion is a combination of, we're, we're reading signals within our body and then our mind puts a meaning onto it. And so what happens is if somebody has been traumatized, they tend to interpret that, that signal of rapid heart rate and, and whatnot as something really bad. And unfortunately, that's the same physiology we get if we're excited. If we, if, if we are like, oh my gosh, you know, the, um, uh, this thing is happening and I'm just so thrilled. Sometimes people purposely avoid excitement that's positive excitement in their life because that physiological state for them ha- has this other meaning. One thought that Dan's question triggered in me is, are emotions or are qualities like love, compassion, humility, et cetera? Well, he asks, are these fundamental characteristics of consciousness? So the question is, do these qualities somehow reside in the field of consciousness as features of it, which would naturally blossom in one's awareness if one were aware of the field of consciousness clearly enough? Or is it that there's something that it doesn't make sense to talk about those qualities as being intrinsic to consciousness, but that somehow the, the interface of consciousness with the human machine, with human mind-body, stimulates those feelings and those emotions and the corresponding neurochemicals? This relates to another question that often comes up, and that is, you know, can a person be an enlightened scoundrel? Can they have access to pure consciousness or have that be their their all-time experience and yet be cruel to people and and creating harm in their lives. And some people actually argue that they can be and that that's the way it is. There's no correlation between ethical values, let's say, and higher consciousness. And others argue that there's a reason why enlightenment has been associated with saintliness all these years and that you naturally are going to be a, a better, kinder, more loving, more compassionate human being if you awaken to your essential nature. When I think of people's descriptions of divine consciousness, I, I mean, love is usually in there with, is, with the yeah. description. So I really think of, and I think of divine consciousness as also being tied in with creativity. So I, I do think that there is an inherent creativity and love in divine consciousness. And then I also think that there's also this destructive aspect that's you know sort of the yin and the yang there's there's also destruction that goes along with that there's brahma and there's shiva right exactly exactly but i'm glad you mentioned creativity because when you look at the universe itself i was watching a bbc documentary about the ocean last night and all the fish and the whales and all this stuff and you know you watch things about the rainforest or about any aspect of nature you think holy mackerel what a proliferation what an abundance of creativity you see on display. And who or what is the creator of all that? Is that just some kind of random process of little billiard ball-like particles bumping into each other and in some miraculous way creating all this stuff? Or is creativity a quality of that from which all this has arisen? And then we get around to the notion of God, which is not a good word because it has so many connotations, but that's what we're actually alluding to is some infinite field of creativity that gives rise to the universe and continues to evolve it into more and more complex forms, which when they become complex enough, can actually recognize the source from which they came. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and I really think as human beings who have free will and who have the capacity to love, that to me, that is such an essential part of my life to me, is to really be contributing to that, especially in, in this time period where we, we hear about all these dark things and destruction and whatnot. I think those of us who are oriented this way, I mean, to be able to focus more on the, on the love and, and, and to really contribute towards that evolution of, of consciousness. We're very blessed. We really are. I mean, it's a feeling like you're, you really can yeah, contribute. That's the best word, that you're, you're an instrument of the divine able to somehow be used in a beneficial way. That's, that's very gratifying. Now, you use the word free will. <gasps> I listen to a fair amount of Sam Harris on and off. And he has some pretty eloquent arguments about why we don't have free will. And there are a lot of other thinkers who, <clears throat> who say we don't. And I heard you say in your book, and, and I could call up some nice quotes from Mayor Baba and Orbindo and various others about how we do have free will. So let's just play with that for a minute. As a psychiatrist and as a, in terms of everything else you know, why would you say we have free will? Well, I would say that we have free will because of my own internal experience of it. At the same time, I, I can understand why people say that they question free will, because there are a lot of people who don't exercise free will. I mean, they may think they are, but they're actually kind of skating through life, and they're just reacting to whatever's in front of them. And, you know, what's happened in the past and what's in front of them. And they're not engaging in the kind of practices like, like to me, meditation and other practices of discipline like that. Actually, it's like exercising your muscle of free will, where you're, you're really actually kind of deplugging from being part of a big machine that you could just be sort of mindlessly part of and, and, and just acting without thought. So I, I see people who were in situations in which they, I mean, they're convinced that there, that there is no free will. Like I had this one woman tell me about the time that she would, she tried to kill herself by, she turned on the stove and she, and it had been on for quite a while, a gas stove. And she took this match and she went to light it. And like, she knew, she's just like, don't light it. That's going to create an explosion. And she said she couldn't stop herself. She just kept on going forward and doing it. And so she was so caught up in that state of mind that she, she became convinced there is no free will. But then I've also heard stories of people who are in that kind of state of mind and then they, they literally break free of it. So I think that I think free will exists, but it, it may be only a small percentage of our experience <laughs> is actually directly under free will. My sense is that, you know, we're all conditioned to some degree, and so we don't have absolute free will at any given moment, but we can act in such a way, and that, that, that would include spiritual practices, that diminish or attenuate our conditioning so that we're less and less bound compulsively to, to do things and have sort of greater attunement to, we might call it divine will or higher will or something which is in everyone's best interest. We can align ourselves with that. And when we completely align ourselves with that, yeah, maybe we don't have free will anymore because we sort of merged our individuality into universality and we're an instrument of that um, and just happy and willing to just sort of flow with that intelligence. But 
it seems to me we have a lot of say in whether we move in that direction or not, or move in the opposite direction. And I don't expect you to know a lot about Sam Harris, but you, you sort of, when you talked about free will there, you were saying, so oh, yeah, people, you know, they don't think they have any free will and they're, they're kind of purposeless or whatever. But now here's an example of a guy who is extremely intelligent and earned himself a PhD in neuroscience and, um, you know, is very productive and accomplishes all kinds of things in his life. And yet he feels that we don't have free will and, and that if the, the feeling that we have it is just sort of an illusion that, in fact, you know, we don't have it, but we just feel like we do. I think it's really hard to have a definitive answer about, you know, yeah, about people have free been debating will, really. this for a long time. Yeah, they've been debating it for a long, long time. But it, it's interesting because there's this, I mean, kind of going along with that, and I don't know what uh, he makes the basis of his argument on, but through imaging work, we, we've seen that actually there's a part of the brain that becomes active before we consciously make the decision. It's only a, a very small fraction you know, of a less second. Than a second. Yeah. yeah, less than a second. But still, it, it's actually active before we make the decision. And so that feeds in the idea that we think we're making the decision, but re- really not. But the way that those experiments are constructed, they're usually having some kind of paradigm where it's sort of like, well, if you hear this word or see this cue, hit this button, and you're already anticipating actively something. anticipating it. And so I don't think that that state where you're being, you're in some kind of operant conditioning kind of paradigm, I don't think that that is, you know, uh, you can generalize from that state of mind to all states of mind so that, that we can have free will in certain states of consciousness. But in other states of consciousness, absolutely, people are just more like automatons. You know? Yeah. Okay. That's kind of a nerdy point to end on. Is there anything else that um, is dear to your heart that we haven't had a chance to discuss? <laughs> well, we've covered a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've covered a lot, yeah. You mentioned this uh, Never Alone uh, movement for oh, preventing yeah. suicide. Yeah. That's something that I'm very passionate about because I, I think that so many people, it gets back to the, the sense of despair that so many people have. And, and there's just been such an increase in suicide across the board, and particularly in children. It's the second leading cause of death in people that are under the age of 35. And that's huge. Every day, there's a physician who commits suicide. So we're living, you know, in, in these modern times with, on the one hand, we've got far more conveniences and blah, blah, blah. And it was always supposed to get better, you know, when, with all of these things. And yet I've just seen in all these medications, et cetera, et cetera. And yet I have seen over the course of my 30 plus years of practicing, I've seen that there's more suicide, there's more drug addiction, there's more, there's just all of these things that we've been wanting to counter. And I truly do believe that the answer really comes from um, us really connecting um, with each other, learning how to, you know, be in community, learning how to relate to one another, making that a priority, connecting with that greater mind, connecting with that which inspires us, and really if that seems like something you don't know how to do, seek out groups of people that could maybe help you along that way because it really is truly a tragic 
thing. And every person that I've ever worked with who's made serious suicide attempts and survived has later on gone on to, you know, be glad that they did survive. And, and many of them have gone on to have lives that they and have children and careers and make contributions in various ways. And, and so th- there's a sense of hopelessness and despair people can get into, but that's, that can be just a temporary state. And, and we really need to be there for one another. So it's one, one of the reasons why I'm in this movie that's going to be shown across the country, I think in March. And I play myself. I play myself as a psychiatrist meeting with this, it's a docudrama, meeting with this mother whose son committed suicide. And, and the reason why Michelle Pascal asked me to play the psychiatrist in the movie was that he sees that my approach to psychiatry is not what most people think. It's, it's not this all about, you know, medications and that sort of thing. It, it's really a um, emerging of spirituality and compassion and all of my knowledge that I've gained from years of working with people and clinical skills. So That's great. You know, it, There's a woman named Mary Reed, whom I interviewed, who tried to commit suicide. And it's amazing she didn't succeed considering what she swallowed. But anyway, she came around and uh, it's a great interview if people want to check that out. See what you think about this, but it seems to me that the materialist paradigm is somewhat to blame for the rash of suicides, because if life is meaningless, the world is just sort of, as, as uh, Alex Takaris says, we're, what does he say, we're, we're sort of robots in a meaningless universe or something, we're biological robots in a meaningless random universe, and if there's no soul or essence or anything else that survives the life of the, the body then, you know, what the heck? Kill yourself. You're out of here. You're, you're out of your misery. There's no implications, no ramifications, no consequences. But if, you know, we are immortal souls and if the entire universe is a divine play and if, if all of life is pregnant with meaning and if, if we're on an evolutionary journey to higher and higher consciousness or higher and higher stages of development, then how can damaging this precious instrument or destroying it, which is the vehicle through which we can achieve this evolution, how can that be in our best interest? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I really think that it's so important right now. And I'm, I'm just very honored that I was chosen to be part of this movement. Yeah, it's great. What you just said reminded me of another point, which I, as I heard in, in maybe you say this in your book, or I heard it in interviews with you, of um, how much more prevalent autism is now than it was some decades ago. It's like decades ago, 40, 50 years ago, it was maybe one in 10,000, and now it's maybe one in 50 or 60 or 70. And is that just because they didn't recognize it back then, or is it actually more prevalent? And if so, why? Um, Some people blame vaccines or whatever, but what's, what's going on with that? It is actually more prevalent. When I, I spent six months in 1987 studying autism with uh, Sir Michael Rudder, who was knighted for his work on autism, and it was so rare then, one in 10,000, that I was told that when I came back to the States and, and entered into an academic position, that I couldn't make that my area of study because there just wasn't enough of it. And so then when I saw the CDC come out with numbers that it was one in 100 children, I was like, oh, my gosh, I I really want to look into what's going on here. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's so much toxicity in our environment. Um, There's 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 over 80,000 chemicals out there that haven't really been tested. Um, And 
the brain is so complicated that a lot of these things interfere. Um, so it's not only things abuse, that we are injected with, but it's uh, stuff that we breathe and stuff that's in our food and all that stuff. It's everything. It's yeah. everything. I mean, the, the, the number of vaccines children get is, is um, you know, it's, it's tenfold what it was when I was a child. And they're starting at birth, you know, as opposed to waiting until they're a little older. And, and that's during a time that the brain is developing. And the immune system that's in the brain actually plays a role in the sculpting of the brain and learning. And so to be activating the immune system at that time is really kind of risky business. Um, and so, and then in the cord blood, the umbilical cord blood of a newborn, we're, we're finding like 64,000 chemicals because the mother's placenta concentrates toxins in the baby, just like it concentrates um, nutrients. One of the projects that I'm behind is this idea of mothers going through some kind of cleansing detox before they get pregnant so that they give their baby a better chance. Interesting. So the anti-vaccine movement, although it might be a little bit extreme and way off, to, you know, there might be kind of a happy medium someplace, you feel that they might be onto something. Yeah, I, you know, what I think is that I'm not anti-vaccine, but I'm for rational vaccination where you're doing it in a way where you're following the protocols, the way that they were set up. It used to be that you didn't vaccinate a child if they were sick because their immune system's already stressed. And now it's become more like an assembly line, you know, vaccination schedule. And it's just risky. It's very risky. And the, and the consequences are very um, tragic for the families that experience them. And here again, the, the pharmaceutical industry, which we mentioned earlier, has a hand in it because there's a lot of money to be made. And there's so many issues like this. There have been measles epidemics or outbreaks recently, and everybody's saying, this is crazy. These kids should be vaccinated. And it's, it sounds like it makes sense. And maybe it does. But um, there, there must be a right and a wrong way to do this. I got a flu shot this year for the first time ever. I've never bothered. But I thought, what the heck? I found this particular kind of um, flu shot that's called flu block and it doesn't have any mercury or any of that stuff in it. Irene found it. She didn't get the shot. I got it because I didn't want to bring the flu home to her. It's one of those things where society is polarized around the issue or many people are and like they are around politics and gun rights and abortion rights and, and everything else. And um, the, But more nuanced thinking, you know, which takes into account uh, both sides of the argument and, 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 you know, tries to come up with something that actually is sensible and inclusive, it seems to me is sorely needed. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the thing is that I'm, you know, whether you're talking about climate or you're talking about health of our children, um, these things are too important for us to be just dismissing the scientific evidence that's out there. And one of the things that I, I go to these conferences for pediatrics and I'm studying you know, what, what's going on to, to, to learn more about autism. And one of the things they say is that it takes, and this is true, it's 17 years on average for basic science research to translate into clinical change. And that's, that's a long time for, for us to wait on these kind of issues. Because I read basic science and for me to see that this is really what we know, and yet it's not translating into our policies and procedures. It's one of the reasons why I've done more and more public speaking, is to, is to try to get us to have a rational discourse on these matters. Well, in the case of quantum mechanics, it's taken over 100 years, and it still hasn't percolated into the thinking. 
you know, we still think that the world is actually hard material stuff, whereas they've, they've actually told us 100 years ago that there's hardly anything material about it. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> it's all just a field yes. of possibilities. It takes a while for these ideas to really take hold, but we can't afford to wait so long. And we live in an information age in which there, there really are no real good excuses. So you just gave me a good idea for a concluding point. And that is that you talk about precognition, and I don't think you claim to have it, but if you could prognosticate a bit about where things are going in the next 10, 20 years, and you can refer to any things you wish, I mean, in terms of the kinds of things you study specifically, or in terms of our society, or you know where we might go as a species in terms of our, our potential, or anything else, um, what would you say? I do believe that, that we're in the midst of a great awakening. And I really think that over the next 20 years that, that, that we're going to see that. I really do. It's like birthing pains. Yeah, it's going to be a rough ride as it, as it goes. Good. Let's see, how old am I? I just turned 70 in October. So hopefully I'll still be doing that yet, but I'm 90. I don't think Irene's going to like that. <laughs> she doesn't think I will. But we'll be saying, I remember when I said that to Diane. To Diane and I were saying, next 20 years. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. It's fun to be along for the ride and to be involved in it, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. Well, thanks, Diane. I really enjoyed our talk, and I really enjoyed preparing for this um, over the last week, reading your book and so on. Your book, again, which I'll link to on your page on BatCap, is The ESP Enigma. I heard you allude in some interviews to writing a new book, but I don't think it's come out yet, has it? No, uh, it's a lot of work to write a book. I know how it goes, yeah. Right now, I'm doing more public speaking and trying to, you know, just get more of a word out there. Good. Well, and there's a lot of your public speeches on, on YouTube. If people want to put your name into the search field on YouTube, they'll find a lot of stuff to listen to. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And thank you to those who've been listening or watching. And we will see you for the next one. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs>